You're listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. Our prayers that this encourages you in the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Joseph. You guys can be seated. Well, good morning. Hope everybody's well. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open that to Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. And as you're turning there, just a full disclosure, I'm tempted to have everyone lay their cell phones on the stage. The first service did pray for y'all, but I did call out many in the first service that are normally in this service, and we all know why. They were there. And so um, I, I'm not guaranteeing you that Jeremy, who's our audiovisual guy this morning, is not going to put something on the screen. Um, I will continue to preach. But um, it, it, keep in mind, this service is recorded. And so I'd rather not have to edit anything out um, unless it's my mistake, um, not, not yours. And so this morning, we're going to begin a series. And we do this occasionally. Those of you that have been around Covenant for a while, then you know that typically what we do is we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. But there are uh, periodic times throughout the year that we'll take a break and do um, these sort of um, you know, a specific season type series. Now, we still will preach expositionally. We're still going to preach from Scripture and we'll take a text and preach through it. Um, but typically what we do is we start at the beginning of a book and we work our way, um, by God's grace, all the way through the end of that book. But, but the Christmas series is something that we've always done. It's something that I, um, in particular, ha- have an expectation for. I look forward to it. Um, just because of, of what this season means um, for us culturally. Um, it's a season that's, that's somewhat unique in that it's, it's a month long for the most part to where the name of Christ is on the world's lips in a sense. Um, if you look, uh, I don't know if you've ever looked at these kind of stats, but the number of people around the world that celebrate this season, it's, it's pretty astonishing. Now that's not, uh, certainly not them making a proclamation of faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, but um, culturally and even in our world context, it is a season that has historically been been set aside. So what we plan to do over the next couple of weeks this morning, we're going to uh, talk about expectation and see the expectation that was of God's people of this promised Messiah that would come next week. We're going to look at the incarnation and sort of the meaning of Christmas in the week after that. It'll be adoration, and that is going to be the purpose of Christmas. And then we have the privilege this year of gathering together on a Sunday morning, which will be Christmas Eve, and we're going to look at the joy of Christmas, which will be the celebration of um, the coming of the Messiah, and that is Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to pray for us, and we'll jump into Isaiah 9. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your faithfulness to us. Lord, thank You that we can... um, be expectant of what is to come still in your plan of redemption. Thank you that your promises are true. Thank you that as we'll see this morning that you have given us exactly what we need in Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that this morning you would teach us more of yourself. Father, you would teach us more about our own hearts and lives and who we are in light of who you are. And that we would leave here encouraged and confident in you but also expecting of what's to come. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Expectation is an interesting thing. Um, it's something that we're all familiar with. We all have expectations. And I mean, I don't want to just sort of beat the dead a horse of this college football thing. But I mean, some of you have exceeding expectations right now. Like I'm fully expecting to see Auburn number three in the country um, in the playoff. 
but, but more than likely that, that's not going to happen. But expectations are a large part of our human experience. Really, if you think about um, even any sort of relational conflict that you've had at any level, in large part, it's, it's due to an unmet expectation. And, and, and so we build things up in our minds and we expect them to be a certain way. And when they are that way, we're overjoyed. But when they're not that way, um, it, it can really lead to some gloom and some darkness and some depression and frustration and, and even anger at times. And, and so expectation is something that we all deal with and it's something that we should all think about. Well, the expectation in the Old Testament really starts early. In Genesis chapter 1, when God created everything on that last day, He created man, and man was made in God's image, and God came down and fellowshiped with man, and and, and everything was the way that God intended it to be. And then in Genesis chapter 3, things went south, if you will, when the fall happened and sin entered into the world. But what we see immediately, just in the, in the infinite grace of God, when Adam and Eve failed and were hiding from God, we see God Himself come down and pursue Adam and Eve. And, and in that conversation, and I don't have time to talk about all of it, but in that conversation, there is an expectation given when, when God Himself is cursing the serpent, that there will be one that comes from the offspring of the woman, and you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And from then on, there's an expectation and a promise is given throughout the Old Testament of this Messiah that would come and save the people of God. This Messiah would be victorious over our adversary. This Messiah would be victorious over our own sin and death and it all. And so there's an expectation that that builds and builds and builds. And one of the clearest places to see that, and there are many, is in Isaiah chapter 9. Now, now this context is important because this, this promise of this coming Messiah is given in the context of darkness and gloom. And in fact, look up one verse from Isaiah 9.1 to Isaiah 8.22. It says, And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And so the gloom carries over that we're going to see in the first few verses of Isaiah 9 from Isaiah chapter 8, where Isaiah warned Judah about the coming invasion from Assyria. And the invasion of the Assyrians would be terrible for the Jewish people, especially those northern regions of the Promised Land, that is Zebulun and Naphtali, that are mentioned in the first part of Isaiah chapter 8. Nine, these regions were severely ravaged by the Assyrians. So it's really important for us to sort of, as much as we can, kind of put ourselves in this context to understand that this promise of the Messiah here in Isaiah 9 comes in a time where there is gloom and there is utter darkness. There is hopelessness. When you study other places in the Old Testament of this time, the Israelites are asking things like, Has God forgotten us? Like, where is He? Are His promises true? Did we fail for the last time and now He's just sort of turned His back on us? So it's in this reality of depression and oppression and anger and these enemies invading them. And there's like, this isn't just metaphorical. Like these are real historical events. Like there was real literal physical oppression. There was real literal physical death. Real literal physical war. Like this was deep gloom and darkness unlike anything any of us have ever experienced. And it's in that that we pick up in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1, with these promises. But, again, the contrast with the gloom and the dark. But, there will be no gloom for her 
who was in anguish. In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, He has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Four, verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So the promise is that this Messiah, that this event would, would bring joy and gladness to Israel. Again, it's falling on the ears of people in gloom and darkness, but the promise is, is that there will be victory and they will rejoice according to, as Isaiah says, the joy of of the harvest. So the time, the joy of the harvest is, is the time when the work is done. Those of you farmers, you've been there. The work is done, the sweating, well, sort of, unless you're doing corn and then you still got to get to the table with it, right? The work comes after you pig it. But it's the joy of the harvest, like the work is done. That's the idea. Like everything's done, the hay's in the barn, so to say. Now we sit back and we enjoy the work. It's the time when the hard work is paid off and the bounty comes. Isaiah says they will rejoice as men rejoice when they divide the spoil with a celebration of victory. And that's the imagery. There's been this victory and they divide the spoil that they've received from their enemy. And again, like, like we have these images fresh in our mind of these championships being celebrated. It's everybody coming together with this commonality of victory. Like we have won and they're celebrating together. He also mentions this victory would be as in the day of Midian. And if, you, if you're a note taker, you want to jot down Judges chapter 7. You can go back and read this story if you've never read it. It's, it's quite fascinating. Gideon's great victory over Midian. Gideon ends up with 300 men and defeats an army of 135,000 men. And, and, and you know what their weapons were? No bazookas. No tanks. Trumpets. And torches. And an army of 300 men defeated 135,000 men on that particular day. Now, now, the thing to notice about this reference is that there was no one in Gideon's army that flexed after that. Because they knew this victory came from the Lord. It wasn't of their own might. It wasn't of their own ability. It wasn't because of their military power or intellect. It was because God Himself commanded them to do this and they did what the Lord said and the Lord Himself brought the victory. Isaiah also says that they will see a completeness in this victory. And, and that's his reference to every warrior's sandal. Now this is graphic, but this is the way that it was. Every warrior's sandal, garments rolled in blood, will be used for burning and fuel of fire, which, which meant the battle was over. This is what you did when the battle was finished and the victory was complete. You had won. But not only that, He promises that the rod, the staff, the burden of the oppressor will be removed. Now again, we 
uh, probably in this room have never experienced this level of oppression. Now, there, it has happened in this country in the past, and there are places in this world right now where people live under this constant oppression, and they're under this rod and this burden. The promise is, is that this will be completely removed. Now, can you imagine the expectation? Like, like our expectations often get the highest when we're in our lowest moment. And so in their, one of the lowest moments of their existence, in this gloom, in this darkness, in this oppression, in these invading armies, this promise is given from this prophet Isaiah, from God Himself, that there will be complete victory. Like this darkness is going to be shattered with light, the rod of the oppressor is going to be removed, and this victory is going to be sure, it's going to be final. Can you feel it? Like the expectations would rise. Well, how would this come? How, how would this type victory happen? We'll look at verse 6. And the first word of verse 6 is really vitally important. And it's for because it shows its cause. And so you see this word for in, in anything. But, but, but here you go, okay, so how is the victory going to come? Well, here's how this victory is going to come. For to us a child is born. And to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of this son or child, look at verse 7, of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so four shows the cause, and the cause of this victory would be a child. Now, now I'm going to come back to that, but it, it, it's going to be a child, but he doesn't just say child, he also says son. Now, now they've heard this already in Isaiah chapter 7. Turn a page to your left. Look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. It says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now next week, next week we are going to be looking at the incarnation. So I don't want to take away from that message, but I do want to, to, to show the importance of this being a child, which is, a, which is flesh. Like, like this is going to be a, a human. This is going to be human. It's not going to be some super angel. It's not going to be some super spiritual force. This child is going to be a child with carne, incarnate, with, with meat and flesh, like a human being. But this child is also a son, and the son here is the divine son of God prophesied in Isaiah 7, 14. And, and listen, friends, it has to be this way for this victory to be complete. Jesus was not 50-50, 50% God, 50% man. Like, that's not biblical teaching. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. And if He's not 100% both, then He can't do what's promised. And so this would be a child and this would be a son. And this son and this child would have four names. And uh, the first one given is Wonderful Counselor, which speaks to the infinite wisdom that this child would have. And then Mighty God, which speaks to the unmatched power that this child would have. This child would be an everlasting father, which speaks to the fact that this child would be an eternal provider. This child would be the Prince of Peace. Which means that He would bring eternal 
peace. Verses 4 and 5 make that clear in showing that this would be a complete victory, which peace follows that level of victory. But it, um, its implications are spelled out in verse 7 when he says, again, I've read this, but I'll read it again, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be what? No end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. But the idea isn't that these would be literal names of the Messiah, more or less they are aspects of his character. They describe who he is and what he would come to do. Now I do wonder, um, of course Isaiah is inspired by the Holy Spirit here, um, but, but, but I think he might have anticipated maybe some naysayers. Because he's promising this level of victory, he's promising all of these things that, that, that seem outlandish, especially in the context that they're received with people who are in hopelessness, darkness, and gloom, a child is going to do this? A child's going to be a mighty God? Well, then he adds what he does at the end of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And friends, if you don't hear anything else, I hope you do, but if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to know what the solid hope of Christianity is. It's that the Lord will do it. If you want assurance in your salvation this morning, you need to double down on and force yourself in whatever capacity. Ask God to help you understand that He will do it. That's where our assurance comes. That's what guarantees our victory. That's what makes these promises true. Is that the Lord Himself will do this. And so there's a chance that all of this might have sounded too good to be true. But Isaiah says that it will be done. God the Lord has promised to accomplish this and it would happen. But listen, here's the twist. It doesn't happen in the way that they expected. I want to be fair to the Jewish people this morning. I want to be fair to these Old Testament folks. I don't want to stand up here and sort of berate on them and act like I would have been so much better than they are at expecting the Messiah. We can all understand that based on this prophecy, and there are many other prophecies, that it would have built an expectation that this was going to be the great king of David. This was going to be the one that comes in and rules and reigns and rises up this political power. So, so what did they expect? The Messiah that they expected, and this should be a slide, is they expected an all-conquering, God-anointed king that would come and defeat Rome. Now, Rome's fast-forwarding to the time of Jesus' birth. Establish the Jews to their rightful place. That's what they expected. And friends, if we're honest, we can't blame them. Now, I don't know what they did with Isaiah 53. I know, I, actually, I do know what some of them did with Isaiah 53 because there were quite a few different views in the Jewish culture and context as to what this Messiah would be. Some of them thought there would be multiple ones. There would be a suffering one and there would be a mighty one. But nonetheless, they, they doubled down on and they latched onto this idea that the Messiah would be this political power ruler that would come in and establish the Jewish people to their rightful place as the rulers of the world, essentially. In fact, in Luke chapter 2, verse 25, this is after the birth of Christ. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout. 
waiting for the consolation of Israel. That means comfort. Like, who's going to be the one? It's going to be this Messiah that comes in and brings consolation and comfort to Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. Jumping down in Luke 2 to verse 36. This is speaking of Anna. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Israel. And so you see the expectation, even of these righteous people, the consolation of Israel is coming. The redemption of Jerusalem is coming. And then in Acts chapter 1, if you remember a few weeks back, when we began, well, months now, um, when we began the book of Acts, the very disciples that Jesus called out and the very disciples that sat under His teaching and ministry and had first-hand eyewitness accounts of everything, After Jesus has resurrected, right before He ascends, this is the question. So when they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The expectation of this Messiah, and rightfully so, was high. They expected the Messiah to bring comfort, consolation, redemption, and restoration. Even the very disciples that saw and heard from Jesus personally. And so their expectation of this Messiah just wasn't met, to be honest with you. Like what they saw in Jesus Christ didn't add up to what they thought they should see in their Messiah. But in Isaiah 53, it was prophesied that there would be nothing about Him that would attract you to Him. And I think that really speaks into especially our North American culture. When we look at something or someone, we immediately assume and have these stereotypes. And we build their past and their future and everything based on what we see when we see them. And they did the exact same thing with Jesus. He was just a normal dude from Galilee. And I quote, what what good comes from Nazareth? He wasn't what they expected. They wanted a more powerful, they thought, Messiah. Now I think next it's, it's important to deal with not only the Messiah they expected, but the Messiah that they deserved. And I know some of you are like, well, golly, Grinch. <laughs> you know, bring that into the Christmas message. Well, well, look, the Christmas message is nothing without this. I mean, if I'm honest with you, like the gospel is no, the grace of God is not a big deal to you if you've never considered this. And so the Messiah that they deserved, as clear as the Old Testament is about a coming Messiah and what He would be like, it is also clear, crystal clear, about the constant rebellion of God's people. The constant rejection of His provisions, their constant wandering to idols, all leading to their rejection of the very one that they all longed for. In John chapter 1, verse 11, He, this is Jesus, He came to His own. Now again, think about the Jewish people were saturated with the prophecies of the coming Messiah. They had all been pointed by their fathers and their mothers and their grandfathers and their grandmothers for generations to be looking for this coming Messiah. And He came. And He came to His own. And His own people what? Did not receive Him. Because the Messiah was not what they expected. Their expectations just weren't Met. They, they, I mean, just to say it bluntly, they didn't want Jesus. They didn't want what He had to offer. They wanted a political kingdom. They wanted to establish this earthly rule. And, and Jesus comes in here like washing people's feet. And hanging out with sinners. So they rejected Him. He wasn't what they wanted. He wasn't what they expected. 
But they didn't get the Messiah that they deserved. They deserved a righteous judge to punish them for their sins. Friends, they deserved the Lord's wrath. And in fact, in John 3.36, just to maybe take this to another level in our minds, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Listen, but the wrath of God remains on him. It wasn't like when Jesus came and they rejected Him that all of a sudden they had wrath on them. Brothers and sisters, this is so important to understand about the Gospel. The wrath of God was already on them. And Jesus Christ comes into a context similar to what was prophesied, actually exactly what was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 9, except from a spiritual nature. He comes into a context where there's darkness and there's gloom and there's oppression and there's no way out. There's no chance for victory because of sin's bondage and burden on us. And our adversary will have a field day with us if we're left to our own power and strength. But this Messiah, Jesus comes in the context of the wrath of God already being on us and He comes to rescue sinners out of that. You see what I mean by the, like, the, the grace of God and the salvation of God cannot be fully appreciated or understood without understanding what He came to rescue us out of. And the completeness in which He defeated our adversary. And the completeness in which He died for our sins. They didn't get the Messiah they deserved. Why not? Have you ever, have you ever stopped to think about, like, well, why? Why are you saved if you are saved? Why am I? And the most simple, basic, foundational answer in the Bible is because God loved them. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. This is, this is speaking to the Israelites. Now listen, the Lord has... The Lord your God has chosen you. And so God in His sovereign grace has the prerogative and the authority to set His love on the people that He chooses. And that's what He's communicating here. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, if, if verse 7 could have sounded like this. Here's why God chose you. Because you're so handsome and you're so pretty. Because you're so righteous. Y'all are some of the best church people ever. That's why I love you. Because you're so strong. Because you're so smart. Verse 7 says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you. Now, now let's pause there. So what's the basis of God's love for His people. He loves you. That's it. It's not performance. Amen? I don't know if y'all are amen people. That's amen. Like It's not based on performance. It's not based on anything we bring to the table. It's not based on our righteousness. God's love for His people is because He has set His love on His people. And the Bible communicates that this love that God has set on His people is eternal, which means it has no beginning and therefore cannot have a what? Amen. Thank you. He loves us. The reason that God sent this Messiah into this gloom and darkness to do what this Messiah did is because He loves us. 
And this love is eternal. And so, brothers and sisters, I don't, I don't know if you expected a Christmas sermon to give you assurance. But it should. The sovereign love of God. It's a beautiful thing. And when you think about how He demonstrated, as, as Romans 5 says, that God demonstrates His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, in the midst of our sinfulness, in our darkness and gloom with the rod of the oppressor on us, He loved us and gave Himself up for us. So, they didn't get the Messiah they expected. They they didn't get the Messiah they deserved, so what Messiah did they get? They, they got the Messiah that they needed. The Messiah is Christ Jesus. I'm, I'm confident that I will be unimpressed with at least one Christmas gift this year. Are you? It'll probably come from a dirty Santa. It'll probably be, like, like just, I, don't, I say unimpressed, that, that probably sounded, I mean like Useless. Like, you get useless presents in Dirty Santa, and heaven forbid any of you play that white elephant Dirty Santa. My community group knows I, I don't participate in white elephant Dirty Santa. If you don't know what that is, it's when you get your thrift store stuff and bring it to a party and trade it. Well, not trade it, but like, and then you get other people's trash, right? Basically, it's trash. Like, you get their thrift store, you give them theirs, and it's just a waste of time, and you get somebody's, like, plunger. Like, seriously. Or old coffee cup with... No. Don't do that. Don't do that. They, they were unimpressed with Jesus. Jesus, the, the Messiah, seemed useless to the first century Jews because they didn't think they needed what He claimed to offer. And this can still be true today. We will only think of Jesus as a little more than some version of Santa Claus if we don't understand how desperately we need Him. We will see Jesus as someone who just gives us gifts and we will love and worship His gifts more than Him. Which according to Romans 1 is the epitome of our depravity. When we worship and adore the created things above the Creator. Now, there's nothing wrong with the, all that God has given us to celebrate and to enjoy in this life, but the gifts that He give us, that, like, gives us, they are meant to be a catalyst in our thinking and a catalyst in our worship and our catalyst in going, He gave me this gift. What did He ultimately give me? Like, What is this smaller gift pointing to? And the smaller gift is always pointing to the greatest gift and what He's given in and of Himself. And so if we don't realize that we have a horrible condition in sin, and an evil adversary in Satan, we will not be impressed with the Messiah that we received. We will not. We will be unimpressed just like the first century Jews, and we will maybe even create our own version of this Messiah. I think we would all acknowledge that a Messiah, even if He was wonderful counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Even if He was those things, a Messiah that can't change our hearts or that wasn't willing to change our hearts and take the punishment that our sin deserves would not be the Messiah that we needed. I think we would all agree that we do not need a Savior that can't establish peace in the main way that we need peace. 
which I know in an election season is coming up, but brothers and sisters, the most important peace is not our peace with one another. The most important peace is that we are at peace with the Holy God. And that only comes through Jesus. What if we had a Messiah that promised that He would bring us a hundred years of a perfect government, whatever that might be, in a hundred different minds, on this earth? Like, would that be the Messiah that we needed? No. Because that government would eventually outlive us. I think we would all agree we would have no need for a Messiah that couldn't do anything about our greatest enemy, which is death. I mean, what if He was everything Scripture said He was, but then we still face this massive enemy in death? I think we would agree that we don't need a Messiah that can't warn us of the schemes of our adversary and outsmart Him with His counsel and wisdom. I mean, what if like some people believe, and I really think this is filtered into and has been in the church for a while, that there's this good God, bad God, and a sort of like whack-a-mole of who's winning. I mean, what if God was only maybe like on par with the evil God, with Satan, and we just hoped, we're just kind of crossing our fingers that our God would be smarter than our adversary. What kind of Messiah would that be? We don't need a Messiah that might defeat our enemy. We need a Messiah that what? Will. We would agree that we don't need a Messiah that won't have the patience of a perfect father. And the desire to provide for us when we can't provide for ourselves. I mean, what if we had a Messiah that was, was a mean father? That, that wasn't patient. That gave us what we deserved every time. That didn't love us enough, now listen closely, to discipline us and chastise us when we need it in order to correct us back to the right path to Himself. What if we had a father that didn't welcome prodigals with joy? I mean, what kind of Messiah would that be? We don't need a Messiah that's going to heap burden on us. I mean, what if this Messiah came and he said, okay, you better get it right. And by the way, I judge your thoughts and motives too. Holy cow. Like, not just the external. Oh boy. I judge everything. So if you think it, you stand before me on it. I mean, what kind of Messiah would that be? What kind of hope would that be? Like, a Messiah that brought more burden would be a Messiah that brought more gloom and more darkness. We needed the Messiah that God sent. And it was Christ Jesus. Because Christ Jesus was our perfect, infinite Savior that offered a perfect, infinite atonement for our sins. He defeated our adversary handily. He's done. He's on a leash today. He's under the authority and rule and reign of Jesus Christ. And there will come a time when that defeat is realized and He will be done with forever. But it's sure. It's done. Jesus won. The 
Father sent the Messiah that we need. The Messiah that didn't bring burden. The Messiah that did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived in perfect obedience to the Father's will. He took the cross and punishment that our sins deserve. He took the cross, He took the grave that we deserve. And came forth victorious three days later, validating and solidifying everything He said and everything He did, giving us the victory that's promised in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1-7. through 7. And friends, today, if you have not trusted Jesus Christ, today you can have a wonderful counselor. You can have a mighty God. You can have, this is such good news for those, I don't know what your earthly father is like, but this father is not a reflection of your earthly father. He is the perfection of your earthly father. Today, you can have an everlasting father. You can have a prince of peace. True peace. Peace between you and your Creator. And to be sure, one day, all of these offices mentioned will be realized. There will be a physical, literal kingdom of God established on this earth, in the new heavens and the new earth, and Jesus Christ will govern in exactly the way that's promised that He will govern. And so we still have expectations. And our expectations should be exceedingly high, but we should not be confused about what to expect. It is all going to be because of Jesus Christ and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And that is what is ultimately for our eternal good. It's when we are celebrating the glory of God, which is what we were made to do. I want to leave you with Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And, and I, I want to leave you with certainty. Okay, Because we've seen it in a few places already this morning. I want to leave you with certainty because I, I don't know everybody in this room. I don't know what all is going on. But I want you to know that if you feel hopeless and you feel like you're in gloom and you're in darkness and you feel spiritually you have this rod of the oppressor and you know in and of yourself right now today you have no way out of this on your own. Listen to me, you're right. You're right, but this Messiah came for people just like me and just like you. To bring you out of darkness and to bring you out of gloom by faith in Him. And this promise can be true for you. She, she, that's Mary, will bear a son and you shall call His name Jesus. Please, friends, listen. If you, please. He will save His people from their sins. He will. Not He might. We're not left wondering. He will. He will. Would you trust Him today? Let's pray. We'd like to thank you for listening to the sermon audio from Covenant Church at Tuscaloosa. If you have any questions or would like to know more about our church, you can visit our website at www.covchurchtusk.com or you can email info at covchurchtusk.com. God bless.